listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Lindsay Science. And I'm Michael Higdon. A new law will soon have Florida residents paying more when they shop from home. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Savannah Ollinger has the story. A bill requiring internet companies to pay sales tax on purchases made by Florida residents has been approved by the Senate Commerce and Tourism Committee. The bill will address internet tax issues present within the state of Florida, including the effort to collect the tax money that is already owed through internet sales. Vice President of Florida Tax Watch, Kurt Weimner, says even though the tax should technically be paid, many residents get away without paying it. What it would do first is it would um, remove a requirement or uh, federal, address some federal law that says that if a out-of-state retailer doesn't have nexus or a physical location in the state, they don't have to collect sales tax on um, things that Floridians buy over the uh, Internet. However, that tax is still legally due. Uh, actually, when you buy something on Amazon and they don't charge you sales tax, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to download a form from the Department of Revenue, write a check, and send it to them. Of course, nobody does that, and DOR doesn't have any way really to follow up on that. So what this says is it's going to change the definition of nexus so uh, more online retailers will have to collect the tax from Floridians and remit it to the state. Weimner adds, although this law may be new, the idea of taxing Internet shoppers has been around for a while. It's not a new tax. It's tax that's already owed but currently not being collected. And obviously what that does is it puts... Um, uh, local Florida retailers, brick-and-mortar stores at a competitive disadvantage to people outside of the state. Um, so they want to try to address that, but in order to make it revenue neutral, they want to reduce other taxes, the biggest of which would be a reduction in the communication services tax, which is the tax that virtually every Floridian pays on uh, cable, phone, wireless, uh, any kind of communication services, you know, your cell phone bill. And um, <clears throat> so there would be a dollar-for-dollar dollar re reduction on uh, the amount of money that's brought in from this Internet sales uh, reduced by other taxes. Weimner says the tax will help Florida's economy because consumers will no longer be able to order the same item they can find in the store online in order to avoid paying a tax fee. What you find out, particularly in something like uh, electronic stores, um, you know, if you see some electronic stores like Circuit City have to close, because what people do, they call it the showcase effect, where people will actually come in and use the employees of electronic stores to explain things to them, to compare different brands, the, you know, all the uh, benefits of each type of, uh, you know, uh, TV or whatever, and then after that, they'll say, well, we'll think about it, and they go home and buy it on the Internet and not have to pay tax. And so, yeah, it's going to be a big help to uh, businesses in Florida who are paying taxes and employ people, and uh, we think it's going to be a big uh, boost to Florida in general. He adds, even though many states have already started collecting Internet taxes, Florida is just beginning to enforce this process. More than half the states have done something to start getting at that money, and virtually every state with the sales taxes is looking at it. And uh, this is Florida is taking a, a step now to join that crowd. Weimner says that his, this has become an issue in the Senate due to the lack of Internet tax collection for almost a dozen years. I think the biggest thing that needs to be stressed is that this is not a new tax. It's a 
tax collection issue. It's money that is currently owed the state. We're just not collecting it. And the Senate wants to make sure that it's revenue neutral. So the average Floridian is not going to have to pay more in total taxes. The bill is moving forward within the House, but must go through three more Senate committees before it reaches the floor. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Savannah Ullinger in Gainesville. Crystal River residents are worried about the economic effects of the nuclear power plant's closure. The manager of Crystal River restaurant Mama Sally's, Winnie Umheffer, knows 100 plant workers who are now unemployed. People that work out at the power plant have become personal friends of ours, you know. We've, we've grown to know them and they go home and they come back and you know, it's upsetting for all of them and for us too because it's not only going to affect the business but the area. She adds people are losing their jobs because of a lot of different reasons. It is overwhelming, but it's, you know, it's got to be out there. Everybody's got to know how many people's jobs have been affected, especially the economy the way it is today. Now we've just taken and gained 600 families homeless. Basically, they have no jobs. How are they going to pay their bills? Um, Heifer says a lot of people moved near the plant to follow it and gave up their homes. So that was a good thing because they were going to open a new, another nuclear plant, a small facility here, but they're not now. I mean, there's no talks of it now, so that was another possibility, you know, a good thing for the restaurant because we were going to be in the heart of it all and, you know, the owners put his heart and soul into this and we'll be okay, but we're not going to have that extra boost that we hoped for. She adds it's very sad the plant is closing because there are a lot of people who are going to retire but they won't have the chance anymore. There really wasn't a fear because there's not enough radiation coming out of there to hurt us, unless an explosion, of course, and we're well protected by our security out there. Um, feel now about it closing? There's a lot of people without jobs this morning, and that's very upsetting, especially for being a hometown person living around here. I see a lot of people that have already lost their jobs to commercial fishing, now are losing their jobs to the nuclear plant. Um, Heifer adds Crystal River restaurants, home rental agencies, and businesses will all suffer. The Gainesville Regional Airport is pursuing a direct flight from Gainesville to New York City. Public Relations and Governmental Affairs Manager Laura Aguiar says a direct route certainly makes sense, but it's just a matter of economics. Well, the airport's always involved in air so service development. It's the way we can grow and help the community grow. It's part of economic development. We're um, a key piece of infrastructure for our community. So um, we are at a point now where we're seeing just enough people going to the New York City metro area that we think a direct route to New York City would be viable. The challenge is convincing one of the airlines that it's economically viable because if they're not going to make money on that route, they're not going to do it. Aguiar says the popularity of New York City as a travel destination is higher than any other out of the Gainesville airport except one. Right now, you can take American, Delta, United through Silver Airways or U.S. Airways, but you're stopping in one of the connecting hub cities, Atlanta, Charlotte, Orlando, Tampa, to get to New York. So it's not direct service, but we still have people going to New York. I mean, we, that's still our second top destination. Miami is our first, and that's a direct route. Miami did not make our top 50 destinations until we had that direct route from American. So we know that a direct route will help e grow the passenger traffic. Um, in fact, LaGuardia as a destination beats out Atlanta, which is a direct route for us. Aguiar adds the airport is conducting a survey to help show airline officials they have support. We've 
pursued a direct route to New York City before, and we've spoken with airlines before, including Continental, JetBlue. Um, we do have another person that we particularly want to speak to about this New York City route. And so the survey we're doing will help us build our case. If you know, They want to see hard numbers and hard facts, and that's what we need to take to them to convince them that we have a viable route. She says the airport needs one main group of people to show their approval. What we're hoping to see, what we want to see, is that people will use this route frequently during the year. We know that with the growth in our um, innovation businesses, our biotech, our other technologies, that a connection to New York is very desirable to them. So we really need to get the business people to respond to this survey because they're the ones who, who are going to use that route the most. There are plenty of people interested in New York, but if they're going for leisure for a weekend trip to catch a show, that might be once or twice a year. So we really need the business community to stand by us in, in our pitch. Aguiar adds there's a good chance this push could succeed. It's definitely feasible in terms of demand. Well, overall, our passenger traffic has grown. A lot of cities have grown. New York has always been in our top five, for sure. Um, with uh, the addition of American Airlines back in 2010. And then last year, Silver Airways started service to four destination cities, um, mostly here around Florida and the Bahamas. But um, all that passenger growth, it raises all ships, you know, so the passenger traffic continues to increase. And now we're reaching that point with the New York City metro area that a direct route could be viable, that we could fill a plane a day and get people to New York City. Airport officials are asking for the community's input through an online survey. The survey results will help build a case for Gainesville Regional Airport to add a New York City direct flight. The University of Florida is frequently visited by political figures and entertainers. Rarely, though, are they also Gainesville locals. Today, one famous band visited the College of Journalism and Communications. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Branton Snodgrass has the story. Florida's 89.1 interviewed Sister Hazel in the Streetside studio of Weimar Hall earlier today. Hazel's lead vocalist Ken Block, as well as the rhythm guitarist Drew Copeland, talked about their humble beginnings in Gainesville. Both men are alumni to the University of Florida and say they met each other at a tailgate for a Florida-Tennessee game. Sister Hazel also performed a few times, including some songs off their new album. Hazel played some of their radio hits as well, such as All For You, off their album Somewhere More Familiar. Many UF students, as well as local Sister Hazel fans, were lined up outside the studio to come and see and hear the band play live. University of Florida student Brittany Borsani says she waited a while to see Sister Hazel play live. I read The Alligator this morning and I saw that they were there. Um, and I wanted to see them because I missed them when they were here last semester. Like Borsani says, the interview was published in the Florida Alligator. However, for many of the onlookers, it was a nice surprise. I was actually walking by to go take a test, and I didn't even know they were going to be here, so I was pretty excited when I heard the music coming through the radio speakers outside of Weimar Hall. That was third-year advertising student Stacy Heitlinger, who says that she has been listening to Sister Hazel for quite some time, and the band has a special place in her heart. 
my dad and I listen to it, uh, have been listening to it for a while now together. It's kind of something we bond over, so I'm excited to tell him that I just saw them and heard them. The full interview with Sister Hazel, as well as her performances, will air March 21st at 1 p.m. on Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM. There are thousands of law enforcement officers in the state of Florida sworn to serve and protect its citizens. Today, the state recognized the best of the best, honoring nine nominees for their commitment and bravery. Florida Public, Public Radio's Stephen Rodriguez reports for the first time two officers received the Officer of the Year Award. The 2012 Law Enforcement Officers of the Year are Carl Lound and Douglas Weaver with the St. Petersburg Police Department. Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi set the scene. If you can imagine the, the worst gunfire scenario you've seen on any television show, this is worse. What these officers experienced. The officers were involved in a gunfight with a fugitive in January 2011 where several law enforcement agents were killed. Sergeant Lounge was shot in the hand but still managed to evacuate a wounded U.S. Marshal from the firefight while Officer Weaver laid cover fire for those still trapped inside. Officer Lounge and Weaver reflect on their recognition. It's very honored to be recognized by the state and the Attorney General's office. It's, it's, it's an honor. It was a team effort and sometimes not all the team makes it, but they're very good officers and they're solely missed. Both were given a rousing standing ovation for their efforts. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Stephen Rodriguez in Tallahassee. Students rallied at Turlington Plaza today for a new initiative that is trying to stop tuition increases across the state. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Lauren Verno has more. Hey, would you guys like to sign a letter of support to show no tuition increases in the upcoming year? I just did the this thing, the same thing? Yeah, same thing. Boom, that's what I'm talking about. Thank you, man. Today in Turlington Plaza, student leaders rallied against tuition hikes across the state. UF Senate President Christina Bonarigo explained the purpose of the rally with the Aim Higher campaign. So AIM Higher is a student initiative that was created here at the University of Florida with a few individuals that said, you know what, higher education needs to be an investment, it's not an expenditure, and we can't keep taking tuition increases. We've seen tuition increases for the past seven years in a row, and it's been, very, it's been deeply affecting students here at the University of Florida. And so we came together and we collaborated with the 11 universities here in the state of Florida and with the presidents as well. And what we said is if the state legislature invests in higher education, we're asking $118 million, then there won't be tuition increases across the board for all universities. UF Student Body President TJ Villamil says one of the biggest concerns for a student is obviously tuition increases. Well, I think the biggest concern for students is actually increasing tuition over the years and the instability it creates within the household. So it's one of those things that tuition has gone up eight years in a row for your University of Florida students, and that's something that's unacceptable. People need to be able to plan, be able to prepare, and know what the cost of their education is, is when they're coming in. So what we feel like is in order to curb tuition increases, we needed a rally around a brand. We need a rallying call uh, for all of the state university system to kind of be behind all 300,000 300, students and their administrations. And this is something that's very simple. It's just focusing on the positive nature of the investment in higher education. He says that even Governor Rick Scott has showed interest in the AIM Higher idea. Oh, very positively. In the budget that he just passed, I, I definitely think that he's showing a commitment to higher education, especially the University of Florida as a whole. So I definitely think that it's, it's, def, it's there. We just need the legislature to go ahead and pass it, have Governor Scott sign it, and, I, and the university presidents have already committed to not increase tuition uh, for the upcoming year if they get the, a certain amount of money. So we're very happy about that. President Vailmill explains that this is only the beginning of this project. Well, I, I think it's a step in the right direction. I think once we, uh, we stop 
shifting the burden on students and it's a better balance, I think that we can really discuss things where we know that it's important to increase resources for the institution as a whole. Um, but where is that going to come from? Is it going to come from the students? Or is it going to come from the state? I think this is a good step forward in continuing that balance between the two and more importantly showcasing the actual cost, what it's going to be for four years, so that way you have a stability within your ha household and family. Universities around the state are hosting their own similar rallies this week. For Florida's 89.1 WFT-FM, I'm Lauren Verno. On the day Trayvon Martin would have turned 18, Sanford City leaders and residents gathered to remember the teenager. WMFE's Matthew Petty visited Sanford's historic African-American neighborhood of Goldsboro on Tuesday and filed this report. In front of the Trayvon Martin Memorial at the Goldsboro Welcome Centre, residents and police mingled, ate hot dogs and listened to music and speeches from community leaders. Welcome Centre General Manager Francis Oliver says Martin's parents wanted to focus on his birthday rather than the anniversary of his death in three weeks' time. We want to commemorate his birthday with a pledge and we're banding together here in Sanford for peace and we're banding together against gun violence against children. Sanford's police department was criticised for the way it handled the investigation into Martin's shooting. The spate of unrelated shootings also grabbed headlines in the months after the teenager's death. City manager Norton Bonaparte says Sanford is taking steps to tackle gun violence. We've recently established a police task force. It's a unit that's the neighborhood response unit that is going to be out here working. They started last weekend and addressing specifically violent crime. Bonaparte says a blue ribbon panel is also helping rebuild community trust in the police department, but restoring that trust won't be easy. Nor will tackling gun violence in the city, says resident Shanika Robinson, who says she worries about the safety of her three sons. It's getting a little worse here every day, and it could be better. We just need to come together as a community for our children. Robinson says Sanford's incoming police chief has a tough job ahead. The city's offered the position to the deputy chief of the Elgin, Illinois Police Department, Cecil Smith. He has until the end of the week to accept. I'm Matthew Petty in Orlando. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission posted a draft action plan to conserve 60 species of wildlife. WUFT's.org's producer Jensen Worley sat down with the FWC's stakeholder coordinator Claire Sunquist-Blunden to talk more about the plan. Well, the imperiled species management planning effort uh, is something that began back in 2010 when we went through and did a species health check for 63 uh, imperiled species. And at that point, we underwent biological reviews to evaluate the status of those species. Uh, and this was a new effort to try to evaluate. Uh, we wanted to create one statewide system with one listing criteria, whether the species was threatened or not threatened. Um, and so this began back in 2010. But we really have been focusing on creating species action plans over the last six months or so. And that's what we're looking for feedback here uh, in the next couple of months on our species action plans. There are 60 species action plans, and this first round of 23 uh, is what's available for comment at this point in time. What kind of commentary are you hoping to receive? Uh, we're really looking for public partners, anybody who's interested or feels they have uh, a stake in what's going to happen, to give us uh, some feedback on what the species needs are, uh, what actions they can help accomplish, what types of management or research they could be involved with, uh, and what impacts they, these plans might have on particular partners, landowners, 
uh, agencies, universities, anybody who could be possibly involved with this pro project or any of the species that were, were considered. For the most part, we've geared these plans uh, toward being readable for for most most of the general public. There's glossaries, which define some of the terms that we're using that might be more complex or harder for people to understand. But most of our partners and stakeholders have some familiarity with these species, and the, the wording and the complexity of the plans just reflect uh, you know what what is needed for those species. We also think that uh, we've we've kind of changed it from previous management plans. Some of our earlier management plans were upwards of 300 pages, and these species action plans, which are condensed plans, um, and then will be reflected in the final management plan, are closer to 25 or 30 pages. So we feel like they're much more approachable um, and maybe easier to read for, for the general public, but for the most part, our partners and stakeholders, you know, they, they have some background in, in what we're asking them to give them feedback on. When do you plan to have all 60 of these done? So we began this uh, writing these species action plans this past fall uh, after the biological status reviews were completed, and we are sending these drafts these action plans out, these first 23 of the 60. Uh, we're looking for a review for those by March 13th, because at that point then we'll send out the second group, um, and the third group will go out to the general public in April. So once the reviews are complete in March, we'll incorporate those changes and send it back out uh, for final review. And we'll, do the, we'll replicate the same process for all the species action plans with the goal of getting most of them completed by June or July. Uh, and then after that, we will take these species action plans and look across the plans for common themes and strategies so that we can address them collectively instead of species by species, because we know that many of the species needs and uh, management actions will overlap. So that will go on from... Uh, end of June until February of 2014, and once we've developed those integrated strategies and the species action plans, then we'll combine those into the final imperiled species management plan, um, which will be a balance of those broader strategies as well as species-specific um, actions or needs, and along with that draft and the final plan, which we'll send to our commission for approval in spring of 2015, we will look at our drafted rules and regulations and permitting. So all that will be going kind of be going on at the same time. Why these 60 species for this uh, action plan? Well, these are the 60. Uh, we had a moratorium on listing for quite a few years in the state. And when we began the planning process back in 2009 and 2010, these 60 species were... Um, the ones that we really felt like uh, had, you know, they they merited looking at, and uh, we will be accepting, you know, we're accepting new petitions um, or people who are requesting listing, state listing for other species at this time. So we could potentially have more than 60 at the end of this process if people are requesting to to list new species. But those were the 60 species that were on the list at the time of our evaluation. 
Richard Blanco, the poet chosen to write an original poem for President Obama's inauguration last month, grew up in Miami, one of several places that have shaped him and his work. He spoke with WLRN's Alicia Zuckerman on getting the gig, notions of home, and a poetic dispute about the Freedom Tower. From the WLRN Miami Herald Newsroom, I'm Alicia Zuckerman. One sun rose on us today, kindled over our shores, peeking over the Smokies, greeting the faces of the Great Lakes, spreading a simple truth across the Great Plains, then charging across the Rockies. That's from the poem One Today by Richard Blanco, which he was chosen to write for President Obama's inauguration last month. Richard Blanco has deep ties to Miami. He grew up here, although today he lives in Maine, and that's where he's joining me from now. Hi, Richard. Hi, Alicia. How are you? Fine, thanks. Um, first, congratulations on being chosen as the inaugural poet. Thanks, thanks so much. It's been an amazing ride. <laughs> Right at the top of your website, I noticed that you have a quote from Maya Angelou, um, also an inaugural poet for President Clinton. That quote is, you can never go home again, but the truth is you can never leave home, so it's all right. Why, why do you like that quote, and where is home for you? Well, <laughs> it's a very complex question, as you can imagine. Uh, you know, by the time I was 45 days old, I belonged to three countries. <laughs> My mother left Cuba when she was pregnant uh, seven months with me. Then I was born in Spain, and 45 days later, we went to New York and eventually Miami. So I had, I had lived in several places by that time. Add to that, of course, you know, my sense of growing up in the exile, Cuban exile community, in which the question of home is just something that's in the air, uh, that sense of we're all going back someday, especially when you think back into the 70s. And so that's become sort of a focus of, of my work, only because it's something that's obsessed me since I was, since I was a child. In some ways, I think that this appointment really felt like a nod to Miami, whether it actually was or it wasn't. But it, it really felt that way, um, not not just because you grew up here either. I mean, because you're you're Cuban and you're also gay. And of course, that's uh, an important population here. So why do you think you were chosen? Um, I still uh don't know for a fact. <laughs> uh, I'm not even sure how, how the process works as far as how it's vetted. You know, first and foremost, I would hope or imagine or I would dream that <laughs> actually the president has actually actually read my work and was so moved by it <laughs> that he said, I want this guy to read a poem at, at the inaugural. Um, and I as well have identified with the president's story as far as the immigrant father. And I can, I can imagine that some of the poems that I've written about negotiating my own cultural uh, identity in Miami uh, would have spoken to him. You, um, at some point, made a reference to the Freedom Tower. The first brushstroke on a portrait, or the last floor on the Freedom Tower, jutting into the sky that yields to our resilience. And I was wondering if that was a reference to the Freedom Tower in New York City or the Freedom Tower here in Miami. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was an unintended consequence, but they're one of the great tools in poetry is called ambiguity, <laughs> which can be useful sometimes. <laughs> um, but it, it was the Freedom Tower in, in, in New York uh, with the reference of finishing the last floor, which was just done a few months ago. 
But I liked the way it sort of echoed Miami as well. It was kind of like a, a little nod to Miami as well in <laughs> uh, our Freedom Tower, which is, which is, of course, an icon for us. And um, it's interesting that uh, I think the idea of it being the sense of resilience, which the poem speaks of, uh, I think applies to both, a sense of, uh, of continuing and moving forward and, and growing. With a potential budget surplus looming, there are different sounds coming out of Tallahassee this year. Instead of talk of cuts and freezes, there are proposals to increase budgets in education, to give raises to teachers and bonuses to state employees. And one thing we've been hearing a lot in this discussion is that state employees haven't received a raise in six years. Well, thanks to a reader's question about that, PolitiFact Florida decided to check that out. And PolitiFact's Angie Holan talks about what the site found with WUSF's Craig Kopp. A little here first. Governor Rick Scott's $74 billion proposed budget includes a $2,500 raise for full-time teachers and a $1,200 bonus for state employees. But on top of that, we have a variable pay component. So 15% of the state workers could get uh, $5,000 and another 20% could get $2,000 in variable pay uh, and do that annually uh, going forward. This is what's in this budget because I want to reward the most effective uh, employees. Now, some state legislators, Angie, are going farther than the governor, proposing across-the-board permanent raises for employees, including Democratic State Representative Michelle Raywinkle of Tallahassee. She's proposing a 7% raise for state employees. She was the one quoted as saying, these people have not seen raises in six years. Angie, true or false? Well, she was, in context, she was talking about across-the-board pay raises. That's what we looked at, and that is true. There has not been an across-the-board raise, pay raise, since the legislature approved one for 3% back on October 1st, 2006. So that's a little more than six years ago. So there's an across-the-board pay raise. That means everybody gets this percentage of a pay raise. So you're saying that somebody in state employee got a pay raise in the last six years somehow. Yes, we found a few cases, not that many, but where a few cases where state agencies gave pay raises. The Florida Highway Patrol gave a 5% pay increase to some of its employees in 2008. And the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission gave a 3% raise for its law enforcement officers in 2011. And there have been some cases where workers could qualify for a pay increase if they did an exceptionally good job for exemplary performance, they call it. But overall, uh, no across-the-board pay raises since 2006 when the legislature approved that. We got another fact check this week, Angie, involving Marco Rubio. But it's not what Rubio said. It's what radio talker Rush Limbaugh said. Rubio was on Rush's show and said that Latin Americans come to the U.S. to get away from state stagnant economies where the rich keep winning and everybody else keeps working for them because big government dominates those economies, to which Rush responded, Research shows that a vast majority of arriving immigrants today come here because they believe that government is the source of prosperity, and that's what they support. Is Rush right, Angie? We wanted to see what this research was that he was citing and did not find uh, what Rush said we were going to find. We rated his statement mostly false. Uh, the one thread that we found was sometimes when pollsters ask recent immigrants, if they want a smaller government with fewer services or a larger government with more services, they will say that they favor 
more services the larger government. But they don't say that that's why they came to the United States. You could not find the actual research that he said he quoted? Uh, No, and we asked him for his evidence. He didn't get back to us. Angie Holen of PolitiFact, Florida. Thanks for your help today. Thank you. We're now joined by WUFTFM's Kyle Benzion. So it's a huge day for Gator football. It's National Signing Day. Kyle, can you give us the rundown on all the Gator recruits? That's right. It's been a very busy day at the University of Florida today. The Gators have inked in 28 guys that will be playing for the Orange and Blue starting next season. Eight of those have been early enrolled. That means they're on campus right now, including Kelvin Taylor, a 5'10", 205-pound running back from Bell Glade, Florida. His father is, of course, the Gator great Fred Taylor, who played in the mid-90s for the Orange and Blue. Then there are 20 other guys who have signed their letter of intent for the 2013 class. A couple of them are highlighted by Ahmad Fullwood, the wide receiver, 6'4", 200 pounds out of Jacksonville, and Vernon Hargraves, the third, the defensive back. 5'11", 181 from Tampa. Hargraves is a Under Armour All-American, really had a great game in that Under Armour All-American game. Um, But the Gators have signed five wide receivers, a position that they definitely needed help at this past year. Also, Will Muschamp talked this afternoon and said he was very happy with the recruits he got on the offensive line as well as the defensive line. He says he always likes to have 16 or 17 guys that he can play at those positions. He wants to have depth there because he hasn't had that before. One local standout, Chris Thompson, six foot, 167 pound wide receiver from Gainesville High School. He'll be playing for the Gators this year, as well as Case Harrison just was announced today. He'll be from Gainesville High School as well. He's going to play as a walk-on a wide receiver for the Gators. So a couple local guys from the Gainesville area that'll be playing for this football team next year. All right, awesome. Go Gators. It seems like landing a job after college has become more of a fairy tale than a reality. Based on Department of Labor statistics, the Associated Press reports over half of recent college grads are unemployed or in a job that doesn't require a degree. WUFT News' Sarah Samuels reports University of Florida students are doing what it takes to land their first job after college. For day two of the career showcase at the University of Florida, students eagerly lined up for the chance to meet company representatives. Today, students in the math and science majors were there for the technical portion of the career fair. Freshman Francisco Lozado says he's not looking for a job just yet, but he wants the opportunity to network as much as he can. While some students are here to try to make connections with companies or even land their first internship, many students are here trying to land that first job after graduation. I think students are, um, they are aware of the economy and that the, you know, it's very important to start early. The earlier that you start, um, it just increases your likelihood of success um, by graduation. Some freshmen showed up to get an early start. They want to explore their options, but most students at the event were upperclassmen mostly seniors who see their graduation date looming in the near future. I do want to make sure I get a job. I do know a lot of graduates that go home and just go back to serving jobs, which is not what I want to do. definitely want to go into a job once I graduate. The University of Florida's Career Resource Center reports a record-breaking 3,500 students attended yesterday's portion of the event. They expect the total number of students from the two-day showcase to surpass the previously held record of 7,400. Sarah Samuels, WUFT News.
The federal government gave Florida permission to privatize Medicaid for state residents in long-term care facilities. Margie Menzel has more. U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius signed off on the first of two waivers to put Medicaid recipients into private managed care. The one she approved Monday affects people in long-term care facilities, such as nursing homes. HHS had until Thursday to decide on that waiver. The legislature approved it two years ago. The other waiver, which would privatize the general Medicaid population, is still pending. It has no deadline. Governor Rick Scott has been pushing for the waivers as a way to cut Medicaid costs. He wrote Sebelius on Monday, asking her to approve the second one immediately. Scott has tied the waivers to the Affordable Care Act, which includes an option for states to expand Medicaid. I'm Margie Menzel in Tallahassee. The Florida Supreme Court heard oral arguments Tuesday as to whether a group of Floridians could subpoena a Kentucky company for the inner workings of its breathalyzer, the Intoxalyzer 8000. Stephen Rodriguez reports the case's outcome could affect the state's subpoena power. Three defendants in a drunk driving case say the Intoxalyzer 8000, made by Kentucky-based CMI Inc., registered them as drunk when they say they weren't. That's why they want details on how the machine works. But CMI says it doesn't have to give that information out because it was not being directly sued and was outside of Florida's jurisdiction. Florida Supreme Court Justice Barbara Periente says if the tests are inaccurate, that's a concern. I understand we've got a legal principle here, right. but you know, at some uh, point we're I, also I, here to try to do justice. And if the source code is, in fact, uh, shows that the uh, breathalyzer is not reliable, really want to get and search for the truth here. The court has not set a date for when it will release the decision on the case. Experts say, however, the outcome could affect Florida's subpoena power. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Stephen Rodriguez in Tallahassee. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Michael Higdon. And I'm Lindsay Zions.